So my work is on the role of the internet um, for political social movements, um, particularly in um, Palestine, Lebanon, partly Jordan, but uh, the Middle East in general since the last few months. Um, which means that I'm a bit spoiled and always expect <laughs> that there would be internet connection, but it's not really important. If it doesn't work, forget it. It's no, not we're really getting connected. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, so before I, I start, uh, I think about, before I start to get into the whole topic of the role of the internet for, um, for the... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit distracted. <laughs> Anyway, I'll just continue, yeah? Before I start about the role of the internet for social movements in the Middle East, uh, a few critical remarks and maybe some provocative um, points of interest I'd like to address. Um, I mean, first of all, of course, we have to uh, admit and acknowledge that it's very clear that the revolutions that started in Tunisia and Egypt have renewed and polarized uh, debates about the role of the internet. Um, uh, specifically, the role of the internet for political change and spur of articles and debate and discussions. Uh, uh, it almost became like uh, if you would add the term Facebook or Twitter in your title for an article, it would be published in the Guardian or the Times. Or so I mean, so there is a whole um, uh, there's a enormous dynamic uh, debate, and sometimes it's, it's a bit difficult to. Uh, sort of take a step back and, and, and try to realize uh, what really the impact of social and, or new media is. Um, it's also problematic because the, the debates are very topical. Um, and there's this, as I said, this race for sort of academic or journalistic niche that everybody wants to get so the debates are usually reduced to very polemical claims, um, which are either very dystopian or very utopian. Um, one of the commentators, I thought, made a very relevant critique uh, was uh, Mejias, who argued that um, this whole Facebook and Twitter hype uh, performs two uh, grand functions. First of all, it depoliticizes conflict. That's very important because I mean these are very political, complex conflicts, and you know, giving it a, a Facebook or Twitter framework uh, depoliticizes uh, depoliticizes that incredibly. But the second point also of critique was that it whitewashes corporate capitalism because we start to talk about Facebook and Twitter as if they're you know comrades in the struggle and uh, uh, therefore change. But of course, these are at the same time, uh, uh, yeah, multi-million or billion uh, uh, companies, um, they don't even know how to value them. That, that is the extent of the sort of insanity of these comp companies. Um, and I think that the, 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 the critique of whitewashing corporate capitalism was very uh, painfully accurate in, during the Egyptian revolution when Vodafone and France Telecom who provide most of the mobile telecom connections in Egypt, uh, basically just obliged to the regime's request to cut the lines. Uh, and they did that because they were threatened by you know, the fact that they would jeopardize potential business deals. So this whole idea of you know, media and freedom and uh, uh, political change uh, is uh, uh, embedded in these sort of hardcore political economic realities. So that needs to be stated. Um, 
On the other hand, um, assertions that the internet or social media have no effect on the dynamic of revolution, uh, and that then being counterposed by assertions that these technologies had a major determining effect uh, on the revolutions are basically um, unsatisfactory. They are very well uh, placed in, I think, hyped um, newspaper debates, but they're very unsatisfactory for, I think, an academic uh, debate or discussion. Because, first of all, such perspectives, I think they isolate the internet also from other media. And they isolate the internet, of course, from society. The internet being uh, part of society, people use them, people use them on their own terms, in their own ways, etc. So without the society, without the, the, the cultural shaping of the technology, um, the technology wouldn't exist, but without the technology itself, of course, people wouldn't have something to, to shape or to, to mold into their own interest. So that is a, a sort of a general important critique to make. Uh, it, it, it sounds so self-evident, but we've come to the point that we really need to sort of repeat these very simple, basic uh, understandings. Um, and I think that uh, a much more comprehensive uh, outline uh, which I also employ in my work in Palestine and Lebanon, is to, is to understand the internet as having basically a dialectical impact, of the internet being a blessing and a curse at the same time. So interestingly, some of the uh, essentializing projections about technology that we've seen, whether dystopian or, or utopian, have also occurred about the Arabs themselves in the last few months. Um, um, I mean, I remember front page uh, uh, of uh, The Economist, talking about the Arab awakening. Uh, I mean, it's very old-fashioned, orientalist style, a representation of, of, of a people. Uh, but of course, the, the, fact, uh, the matter of fact is that the region, we want to talk about the region as a whole, was in turmoil for over a decade, uh, extreme turmoil. I mean, this started with um, social and political uh, protests, uh, first of all, the outbreak of the Second Intifada in 2000, uh, mass mobilization against the war in Iraq, um, and huge protests uh, uh, in several countries, particularly in Egypt, very interesting um, explosion of demonstrations calling for uh, constitutional reform in 2004-2005. Um, uh, which is also taken up by judges. We've seen that in Pakistan, but also in, in Egypt. Uh, marching judges marching in the streets, like a kind of a segment of society that no one would associate with activism, uh, which only says how deep the the uh, the anger and the, um, and the divisions were in society. Um, and uh, the last straw, uh, probably in Egypt, was the election in October, which by some miracle, uh, Mubarak again won by 99.9% .9 or something like that. Um, and in the same period also, large strikes, enormous strikes uh, in textile sector and other um, working class uh, 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 cities. Um, and this was also all on the background of what was referred to in the last few months as the internet revolution, the internet enabled revolution. Um, and I think that if we want to see, if we want to generalize, um, if we want to see similarities between uh, Tunis, uh, Egypt, Algeria, then we can say that it's actually the, uh, 
the, the, the economic impact. Um, the impact of uh, sort of the neoliberal privatization demanded by IMF and World Bank uh, in combination with increasing prices due to the financial global crisis, uh, which really meant literally that, you know, something that cost one pound two years ago would do 10 pounds today. Um, these have, uh, crises have set uh, in motion the political struggles um, and mobilized and politicized millions of people long before this whole Facebook uh, uh, debate started. Um, this also makes, com makes me come to the point uh, that the protests were anything but spontaneous. And I think that's another myth we need to take into consideration. Um, because it seemed like if you would hear, hear the discourses, the debates, as if there was nothing, people were sleeping, and then, oh, there was social networking, Web2, and then they woke up. And there was a spontaneous outburst of, of anger. Uh, um, on that, for instance, on 25th of January in Egypt, the 25th of January revolution. Of course, it was anything but spontaneous, and it required weeks and months of preparation uh, to be, and build up. And for Egypt, uh, clearly Tunisia was the tipping point. The fact that Tunisia showed you can actually topple uh, a dictator who, uh, you know, who has a monopoly over uh, violence uh, and has subjugated uh, its people for three decades. That was a tipping point, not uh, the Facebook mobilizations. The Facebook mobilizations stepped into that tipping point. That is a very uh, important uh, note to be made. Um, it's even more complex, actually, because those, um, if you I'm a, I'm a political anthropologist, so I'm, I've been, uh, most of my methodology is uh, doing interviews with the very activists on the ground. And if you just scratch the surface a little bit, you would find that uh, a lot of those um, people behind the Facebook groups that were presented as being, you know, new, apolitical in a way, new politics versus the old politics, traditional politics, were themselves partly... Uh, uh, these Facebook groups were, uh, were partly inhabited by activists who were part of the, of, of the mainstream political groups. So, I mean, some of the activists, a lot of them were, of course, obviously anonymous. You had to operate uh, in an anonymous fashion uh, under dictatorial regimes. But, I mean, if you scratch the surface a bit and you know the milieus, uh, you find that these are also people who are active in... Some of them are, are active in the Muslim Brotherhood, some in, in Marxist groups, some in new, you know, uh, student groups that have no political, ideological affiliation. But nevertheless, they were offline political groups, which also were represented in these big Facebook uh, groups. So that is a very interesting, um, I think, uh, um, discovery that uh, uh, in, uh, uh, rather than the, the, the idea that new media, and I think this can speak to all the people who are doing research about new media, rather than the idea that new media also assumes new politics, a completely new style, you could say non-ideological. I think that's almost the wishful thinking of a lot of writing, that it's non-ideological. Um, it partly is that, but it certainly uh, is also anything but that uh, in many cases. Um, uh, and uh, another fine uh, uh, example that I thought was also um, stories about, I mean, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but there were a couple of 
uh, fascinating pictures uh, from Egypt where you could see lines and lines of police and riot police being confronted with ordinary people but faced by uh, uh, non-armed uh, civilians who would basically jump into the crowd of, uh, of police and take big risks. And people were making jokes about them. Who are these giants? Who are these? Uh, where did they come from? And well, those were actually people from uh, what they call uh, uh, football hooligans. They, those were uh, people from very well-known football fan clubs in Egypt. And uh, it occurs that without their expertise in dealing with riot police, which football hooligans usually have, <laughs> the, 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 the protest wouldn't have survived, you know? Like, it was really their, bringing in their expertise on how to deal with, uh, with riot police, how to avoid uh, bullets, how to uh, uh, stop um, their jeeps, etc. So those are kind of offline, uh, completely unrelated to Web2 uh, elements that, that made this, uh, this revolution survive. So let's juxtapose this with um, that popular representation in ma ma mainstream media. And I'm sorry to, to be so uh, critical and, and maybe ruin some of the beautiful uh, narratives about the fantastic uh, stories of Facebook, but I just want to stay true also to my to my, uh, to my uh, work. Um, I think also if we uh, uh, want to have a more critical sort of conceptual analysis of why this big juxtaposition and paradox actually of what was represented in, in mainstream media, particularly I think in Western mainstream media, because this whole thing about Facebook and it was really, if you look at the different newspapers in different regions, it was very much a European, North American discourse. It was much little present in the Arab press, for instance. But for me, it seemed almost as if by repeatedly putting uh, these sort of internet corporations like Facebook and Twitter at the center, uh, at the center, literally, I mean, putting that in the, in the center of your title of a piece is almost putting it in the center of what happened. It's almost like uh, as if um, there were particular Western characteristics artificially being inserted in uh, Arab revolutions, which were anything but Western. And it was almost like a very good example, I think, is Jonathan uh, Friedman's uh, piece about the role of Google in awakening the Arab mind. It was almost as if it's this frustration of there's something going on there against all odds. We all, all thought that they were sort of passive, sleeping, they don't do anything, they're just being oppressed. And then suddenly they actually more brave and more democratic than we wish uh, we could be here. And then how do you insert something like some kind of relevant uh, uh, Western interpretation? And that was by making it into a Facebook and Twitter revolution. And I think that that is the reason why a lot of the people, me and a colleague interviewed uh, in Egypt uh, and Tunisia about the revolutions were frustrated. They were not so much angry about the fact that it was uh, mentioned that they used Facebook or Twitter, but I think a lot of the people we interviewed and activists on the ground were more angry by the fact that they were not being put in the center of the political radical changes that happened, but a technology. So that is, I mean, that is, uh, I think, an important critical um, commentary to make about this uh, a whole debate, which, of course, in the last uh, minute uh, of my talk, which doesn't represent how I think about it, but. In the last minute, I would like to state that it doesn't mean at all that the internet uh, uh, didn't play a role. Uh, on the contrary, um, let's take, for example, Egypt. 
Egypt, uh, or let's take the, the region, it has the highest growth rate of internet penetration in the world. I mean, this is astonishing. It had over the last eight, nine years, almost 2,000% growth rate. This is amazing. And then combine that with the fact that, is, that the region is among, is the, has among the youngest population, which means that there's a generation growing up which are going to be internet domesticated. They're just going to know by default how to open a Facebook account and, and, and read emails. So, I mean, the potentialities are enormous. And Egypt, being a country of 80 million, 82 million, has about 23 million broadband internet users, uh, of which 9 million, by the way, mobile phone internet users, which is quite impressive. And also, after uh, Facebook opened its Arabic version, uh, in 2009, the numbers tripled, or more than tripled, of Facebook users uh, in uh, Egypt. And there are more of these data which shows actually when it comes to internet usage and internet penetration, it is incredible. It is, uh, it is almost, uh, you would almost, uh, if you compare the socioeconomic situation with uh, across the globe, you would almost say it's over uh, average. It's, it's more if you compare like what people can afford. Uh, I'm sure that I've seen figures of southern uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where there are relative uh, comparisons when you take into consideration also the level of poverty, the level of uh, education, etc. So uh, absolutely uh, um, crucial element, uh, the internet, in terms of the, the domestication, the average uh, everyday life patterns of uh, um, usage. But in terms of uh, how to put internet with regards to other forms of um, uh, media, uh, even for me as an internet re researcher, I would have to say that, uh, of course, in terms of shaping public opinion, which is m one of the fa most, I think, important um, uh, impacts of internet media. It's about uh, organizing the activism, but also shaping opinion. In terms of shaping public opinion, uh, it's never, it, it's not as close as uh, Al Jazeera or other satellite TV uh, media. So in, in terms of comparing it with other forms of ICT mediums, I would say Al Jazeera in the revolutions of the last few months played a revolutionary role uh, compared to the media. And I think that I'll end up with a quote from Hillary Clinton who, who basically said herself, um, Al Jazeera has been the leader uh, in uh, changing people's minds and attitudes uh, and like it or hate it, it is really effective. And I think that is also part of the reason why perhaps Al Jazeera is now uh, in negotiations in, uh, in the States, in America, to actually allow it to air on American uh, satellite because the American uh, administration, I think the Europeans as well are understanding. If you want to win the war over, you know, the the war of, uh, the, of public opinion, you need to do that through their channels uh, of policy, uh, of sort of uh, public opinion making. And I think Jazeera is going to become one of those mainstream uh, million reaching uh, uh, audience uh, satellite channels that will do that. And that, in comparison with the internet, uh, we have to admit, is superior. So I, I'd like to leave it at, uh, at that. I had a, uh, an example that I wanted to show for a minute, but I think, I don't know, I, I think I talked more than I should, so I don't think I should. Should I show something about? If, if it's very short. Is it? Well, it is, it is um, 
a video. Um, it's a YouTube uh, video. I know, I mean, of course, when we talk about shaping public opinion, one of the most important things is to understand that uh, uh, in countries where you have a high level of censor censorship, oh, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> See, this is what I mean by corporate. <laughs> well, I'm just pressing a T. <laughs> uh, when it comes to uh, public opinion, uh, um, Critique to the regimes and leaderships are, of course, totally absent in mainstream media. So in that sense, YouTube played an enormous role. And I, this is an example from Tunisia. This is a, 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 guy, a kid called um, El General. He's a, he's a, he's a Tunisian uh, rapper who basically, they call it, they say that this was a call to revolution. Uh, and I just want to show uh, a few seconds to show the the effect uh, of um, the, the the media, the new media, internet media, the effect it has on on attaching uh, to different sensors of the audience. There's one thing to read stuff. There's something else to hear the the audio and the visual uh, sensors of uh, of uh, that that YouTube, for instance, uh, generated. Uh, this uh, was a track. Uh, that came out during the protests called Tunis Vladna. Uh, that means Tunis is our country. Uh, and, it, and it sort of, re before it was taken down, of course it was taken down within a day or something, but before it was taken down, it was already downloaded thousands and thousands of times throughout the whole region. Everybody understood it, whether you were Moroccan, Tunisian, Egyptian, uh, uh, etc. And they call it the, the call to revolution. Um, and the, 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 what I, why, why I want to show it is because it shows the, how it integrates a political message and just basic popular culture. So a collage of very critical images against Ben Ali uh, and how that speaks to the, uh, to the audience. But <laughs> this internet connection <laughs> is not lending itself to this because I see that it needs to be, I think you need to buffer it, right? So maybe we'll just leave it. Because this, I think the connection is a bit weak, so it needs to buffer. So maybe I'll, what do you think? Uh, just write it down if you want, if you're interested in this. El General, and there's, a more, um, there's more clips on the internet. Um, yeah, but that's only the first few seconds, and then it will continue buffering, I think. Well, if you want to see a bit. So the sweet thing is now you have the image, but you don't have the sound. So I, I suggest we just leave it. <laughs> yeah? All right. I'll leave it here. You can always email me, or I'll send you nice video clips. So.